the stuff that's in New York, I mean, I had that parked in my home in the back hallway. <laughs> there are 9,000 lobby cards, right. okay? So it was 22 boxes of stuff, and it was stacked up, alphabetized, um, all archived in archival bags and backings and stuff. But because I was adding to it, it was easier to just keep it all there. Um, and people would walk by and they'd really kick it or something <laughs> and everything. And now it's up in the museum and I can tell you from last Friday when it opened, I mean, they're just like the people going, ooh, and ah, and I mean, I love seeing it. It's the same stuff. You know, it's right. just like, instead of being on my basement floor on the way to the garage, it's up in a museum. Out of the silver shadows and into the Klieg lights of Movieland comes Nitrateville Radio. This is Michael Gebert in Chicago with Nitrateville Radio, the podcast that talks to people doing cool stuff in the world of vintage film. Brought to you by Nitrateville.com, the discussion site for movies from the vintage era all around the world. What do we love most about movies after movies? I talked to a serious poster and lobby card collector, Dwight Cleveland, who has a show in New York right now devoted to vintage films made by women. Plus, after three long years, Nitrate Diva Nora Fiore is back as our TCM Film Festival correspondent. Help us collect more fans. Leave us a rating and a review at Apple Podcasts. Thanks. After two years off of live screenings, the TCM Film Festival came back in April in Hollywood. And after a three-year hiatus, Nitrate Diva Nora Fiore is back as our regular TCM Festival correspondent. I started by asking her how she felt finally getting to go back. A little jet lagged, but otherwise <laughs> uh, still have that post-TCM Film Festival glow, I like to think. <laughs> yeah, so three years since we did this. Hard to believe. Yes. Just a time warp, you know, it just, yeah. it just flipped. It's funny because when I was doing the commentary for uh, the Flickr Alley repeat performance, I kept thinking how much I felt like I was in a time warp. Like I kept writing down the wrong year and, and not knowing what it was. <laughs> I'm like, oh, it's not 1946. This is 1947. You know, I, I very much felt uh, I related a little too much to that situation. Yeah. I was thinking the TCM Film Festival is probably the first major thing in this world that got canceled. I'm sure there's something else, but it, you know, in terms of like national big name things came right after the whole lockdown started. I mean, about a month after it. So it was the first one to bite the dust. Yeah. And it was a uh, really heartbreaking um, for a number of reasons. I mean, the, there's the whole pandemic, obviously heartbreaking that it's so, so heartbreaking that it's hard to complain about a festival. It feels like such a <laughs> right. complaining about given what a, what a right. horrible impact this has had, but am I on a respirator? No. Okay. Yeah. Life is okay. Exactly. Right. If, if you and your yours are, are safe and healthy, then that's, that's certainly something to be grateful for. Uh, 
that said, uh, you know, for as a, as far as festivals go, I you know it, it's it is such a big event that connects all of us, you know, that love classic film on social media, that are chatting and talking. It's this once a year event, I'd say, for a lot of us to see each other in person. So it was really hard to not have that fix. You know, it's sort of the the few days that justifies the rest of the year that we have this <laughs> online existence. You know, that kind of makes it like, oh, that's right, that's that's what it's like to be with you in person. And once you get away from that, it it definitely does. Uh, kind of flatten the online relationship a little bit, I'd say. Yeah. So we, yeah. So 2020, it was canceled outright, I believe. Uh, and then 2021, we had the virtual version, you know, which is all right. I saw Chain Lightning for the first time, but you know. Oh, I like that. Yeah, it's fun. Yeah. Stuart Heisler. Uh, yeah, it's, it's yeah. An interesting little film. Uh, and, and with the great presentation by Burton Barron, I, I was glad that they did that as well that made it feel a little more like a tcm film festival thing yeah yeah um a little odd to me seeing bogart in a uh you know in a jet at all <laughs> that like weird moon suit they've got him in yeah like, yeah the helmet and the, all the like the cords on it and stuff it, it's quite a trip yeah oh cut that out you know jimmy stewart can fly but you can't so <laughs> we want him in the fedora fedora we go home <laughs> right yeah um so now 2022 we're back or rather you were back tell me about uh this year's festival i mean was it good attendance it certainly seemed so yeah i mean there were there were lines stretching around the blocks there was the usual packed audiences for for movies that most people have never heard of which is always a joy when you go in to see a movie like fly by night from 1942 which even even among classic film fans i'm sure there are many people who have not heard of that film and there's the theater totally packed because eddie muller recommends it you know films like cocktail hour films like even i understand a uh, counselor at law which i did not get to see i understand that the hollywood legion was totally packed for counselor at law you know the, yeah. the will weiler pre-code which is a fantastic film i got to see that on nitrate a few years ago so i figured i'll i won't be greedy on that one i'll let other people <laughs> legion since i got to see it on nitrate but i understand that was a shutout on that one same thing for baby face uh, i was there for jewel robbery the second showing of jewel robbery because the first one was totally packed so it, it did seem to be very well attended indeed well that's good so our our world still exists and <laughs> People were were recognizing each other and knowing that that they're not alone. Absolutely, and I mean, when I go to TCM Film Festival, I do try to seek out more of the rarer, more obscure fare—the kind of stuff that it takes a TCM to get out of the vaults and get onto the screen. Maybe a little bit more of the the Capital Fest track within the TCM Film <laughs> Festival. It's funny because I, I have friends at Capital Fest who kind of joke with me when I say I go to TCM Film Festival. They say, oh, so you go see Casablanca on the big screen, you know, like all they show are these these big canon classics. And I said, no, actually, I've seen I've seen stuff like Six Hours to Live and a beautiful restoration at TCM. I've seen stuff like Cocktail Hour at TCM. I've seen things like um, uh, Don't Bet on Women at TCM. So they do they do show some of these more obscure stuff and they tend to show it in the more of the smaller venues where you get the real diehard pre-code fans or obscure cinema fans, the real geeky crowd. And, and that's just a real delight. It's, it's very fun. Yeah. So what are the venues these days? I know the Chinese theater is one of them. 
Well, the, the TCL Chinese, so the, the big one, that's actually, I try to make a point of seeing at least one film there every year. They do tend to show more the canon, the big name classics in the, the TCL Chinese. This year I saw Singing in the Rain because it was just too meta not to see Singing in the Rain at the Chinese. <laughs> and so much of it sure. takes place at the Chinese. So that that had a real uh, cute uh, meta vibe to it to see that film on that screen. It's just such a great feel-good film to, to see that way. You know, incidentally, the first time I ever saw Singing in the Rain, it was one of those films I had procrastinated seeing for so long. The first time I saw it was on an airplane television. So I feel like <laughs> that really encapsulates my journey as somebody who has learned to love musicals but did not love them as a child. I went from seeing it almost like a chore on an airplane TV screen near the size of a postcard to seeing it on the huge screen of the Chinese. So it was very symbolic for me learning to to love the classic musicals. Um, so there's the TCL Chinese Theater. There's also the Chinese Multiplex, of which they have three theaters. There's one, four, and six. Four is a little notorious because it's a very small venue. I think it only has a hundred and some seats. And so that one, almost whatever they're showing in there, some people are, are, are going to get locked out. And I had, it wouldn't be a TCM film festival if you didn't have at least one shut out. And that's what I got in, in theater for, for um, evenings for sale, which is a pre-code with Herbert Marshall that I really wanted to see. I was in like the first group of people to get locked in. I think I was uh. like, 10 from the beginning of the line to get locked out because a lot of people want to see that. But fortunately, it is on YouTube. There, there are other ways to see it. So that wasn't too tragic for me. So there's there's those three in the multiplex, two of which are pretty big, one of which is quite small and has a lot of shutouts. One place that they added at the last in-person festival, I believe, is the Hollywood Legion Theater. I did not get up there at the last in-person festival, but I did this year. And I am so glad I did because that is a beautiful theater. I got to see The Flame and the Arrow there, which on this beautiful IB Technicolor print, just absolutely gorgeous to see that rich classic Technicolor directed by Jacques Tourneur on the big screen. That was just marvelous. And then I also decided I liked that venue so much that I wanted to close out my festival there. So that was my final screening of the festival was Jewel Robbery on that huge screen. So to nice. just put out the festival with a close-up of Kay Francis on that big screen in that <laughs> cathedral-esque venue was really, uh, that was magical. I'm, I'm really, I felt like that was the right choice. So my uncle, Gordon Gebert, was there for Flame in the Arrow. Oh my gosh, I didn't put that together. That is your uncle. No, he's not at all. <laughs> um, but you know, there, there were no other, no other Geberts. So seeing a Geberts name in the credits ever was exciting. <laughs> so we've, he's always been sort of adoptive to us. Well, I, I think he, he's everybody's adoptive uncle in a way after seeing him at TCM because he's just, he's everything you hope that a, a former child actor will grow up to be. He seems so centered. He has this successful career as an architect. He's a professor of architecture. And this child career that he had as the little boy in all these classic films is kind of a little footnote to his life that he gets to show up and talk about. He joked that every Christmas when TCM shows Holiday Affair, his text messages are, are blown up by all the notes. Oh, we just saw you on TCM. Oh, my God. <laughs> so uh, that that was really cute. I, I think seeing him talk about that film was the highlight of the festival for me, talking about what he remembered of being on the set, taking archery lessons. That was really enjoyable. It was a wonderful interview. And it it was like a, a double interview because it was the it was Craig Barron and Ben Burt first doing their presentation about all the special effects in the film, the acrobatics that Burt Lancaster and his his friend did, 
the matte paintings, really some fascinating behind-the-scenes footage they were able to pull out. And then they welcomed Gordon Giebert there to talk about his experience on the film. And then they showed this gorgeous IB Technicolor print. So that was just an unbeatable screening for me. I'm so glad that I went to that. That was marvelous. Let's see. What else did you see? Uh, I was looking at your your mm-hmm. tweets about it. So just to run through a couple of highlights, I actually had to write it down because it's such a blur that I'm like, what did I think? I got to make sure I remember. Did I just dream that I saw that one? Um, <laughs> so one thing that was a highlight for me was Spy Smasher Strikes Back, which is this 12-part Republic serial about a superhero action guy called Spy Smasher, who, what does he do? He he smashes spies. Of course, he smashes enemy agents in the United States who are doing things like sabotaging our aircraft and stealing blueprints and, you know, doing all the stuff that everybody thinks of nefarious World War spies, World War II spies doing. And Spy Smasher has a cape and aviator glasses. And in every episode, he foils a new plot. But what Ben Burt did was he took all 12 episodes and he compressed them into a single feature length film that is nonstop explosions and stunts. It was so much fun to watch. And it was really fascinating to hear him talk about how he was able to do that because, you know, oh, it sounds, well, I don't, I don't think it sounds easy, but oh, you know, okay, compress the serials together. Not that hard, but he, I mean, to really make it work, he had to dig up all these old sound effects and he had, he managed to find somebody who had the entire Republic music library that they'd saved virtually out of a dumpster years ago. So he was able to put this together, sourcing all these different elements. And it it played beautifully. It was so much fun. Um, I really enjoyed that. Although he he joked that he didn't have to worry about sacrificing any character development by editing it down because there wasn't any. (laughs) (laughs) Right, right. Uh, as I mentioned, the flame and the arrow was was beautiful on the big screen with all of that great introductory content of Burton Barron talking about it. And I did want to put in a plug. I just noticed that Burton Barron are doing a series on the Criterion Channel soon, so I'm really excited to watch what wow, they what nice. they put out on that because they always those presentations are such a highlight. The stuff they managed to get out of the Warner, especially vaults and this behind the scenes footage, these matte paintings, and really exploring how the magic is made that that's so fascinating to me. Uh, I really enjoyed Fly by Night, which is a yeah. little an obscure title that Eddie Muller has made a point of showing at different film festivals. I know he he showed it a couple of times at Noir City festivals, but I believe this is his first time bringing it to TCM Film Festival. Last year, I interviewed Eddie about his favorite classic crime B-movies, and he, he named this as maybe his favorite. He just loves this film, and it's not hard to see why. He describes it as a B-movie version of The 39 Steps, and that's a perfect description. It's Richard Carlson, who was in my opinion, never more charming as this guy who gets hijacked by an escaped lunatic, or is he an escaped lunatic, who has some secret to this this state secret invented by a chemist. And of course, there are Nazis coming after him. And it just, he, you know, Richard Carlson, in, in escaping the cops, he ends up taking this girl hostage. And of course, she comes to trust him and see his side of the story. And together, they have to foil this spy plot. And it was funny to watch that after having watched Spy Smasher because they're right. almost, you know, very, very similar kind of paranoia, spies among us, World War II films. And uh, I really, Fly By Night is one of those films I had seen before on a bad print on YouTube, but to see it on the big screen with an audience, just all the wisecracks worked so beautifully. Every minor character who has a funny bit of business, whether they're talking about cigars or patriotic underwear, all these 
obscure eccentric little little bit parts just really worked beautifully with an audience so that was that was another highlight for me if you look at the credits it's it, the story was by sydney sheldon future bestseller of you know trashy books and mm-hmm. ben roberts who's one of the co-creators of charlie's angels So, (laughs) you know, early, early, early stuff for them. Yeah. I mean, and just the credits on that are so interesting in that it's a Robert Siadmak film right before he would become this esteemed noir master. Right. John Seitz right before he did Double Indemnity. And uh, I'm not sure if he did Fly By Night before or after he did This Gun for Hire. But again, you know, when we're talking about people who were defining that American noir look in the early 40s, he's certainly, you know, merits a mention. The movie looks great, and it's right before Joan Harrison plucked Robert Siadmak to be her guy for Phantom Lady. So it, it really is a, a film that I wouldn't call noir, but is is at an interesting crossroads right. in that aesthetic. and, and Leading to develop. noir quickly, yeah. Yeah, really really pointing the way towards noir. And there's the one line where uh, the, the escaped maniac, who's not really a maniac, who's really an imprisoned scientist, he says to Carlson, you know, this is a nightmare and you're part of it now, which feels like such <laughs> the essence of film noir, right? You, you are now drawn into my nightmare. Yeah, welcome hold that thought. Me. Let's, let's spend a decade making movies out of it. <laughs> exactly. You know, another film, I mean, one thing I like about TCM Film Festival, again, is that the audience just brings so much to the experience of seeing the film. So, for instance, a movie like Queen Bee, I went to see Queen Bee for the audience. You know, it was on digital. It was it's a film that's not inaccessible. It's not a particularly hard film to see Queen Bee starring Joan Crawford in the 50s. But seeing that with an audience really made that film work, I think, in a way that it would not have if I was just watching it in right. my house. Every zinger just resonated. People were howling at it. And the thing I also like about the TCM audience is that they enjoy the campy elements of some of these films, but they're not trying to find them when they're not there. And they're coming to the films with a certain base level of respect. So Queen Bee, I could imagine a context where people would just see that entire film as a joke and just be laughing at it from beginning to end when there's really this very delicate balance between camp and actual suspense going on in that film. I mean, it's, you know, it's a strong performance from Joan Crawford. A lot of people give strong performances in it. And there's a real sense of dread and darkness to that film. It's almost like a horror film in some way. (laughs) So I I thought that just all the parts of it really worked for that audience. They were able to chuckle at the parts that deserve to be chuckled at, but they were also enjoying the film for the thrill ride that it that it is you know you talked about seeing an ib technicolor print another thing you saw was a 3d uh <laughs> 3d film of i the jury the mickey spillane uh best you know speaking of tawdry bestsellers uh yeah. yeah tell me about that oh well i didn't just see it i was beaten up by it i was shot by it <laughs> i had blown into my face uh, i was almost half expecting to like you know get get secondhand smoke from that film it was just you know i had seen it in a terrible print uh that i think i saw on the internet archive one of these places that has films that they probably shouldn't have but to see that that 3d restoration i mean first of all just to see it looking so crisp was great i mean it's it's not just 3d it's 3d shot by the great john alton right so i was i really enjoyed the way the 3d effects were often pretty subtle like a windshield with a bullet hole in it was something that just gave, gave a scene that extra noir edge uh there's another shot where 
a statue of, of, I think it's supposed to be Quan Yin is like very prominent in the foreground. So just giving you that extra sense of depth. There are, of course, the more flashy 3D effects like, you know, Mike Hammer's fist coming at you, you know, this fight <laughs> yeah. or uh, at, at the beginning when somebody is crawling, you know, in their last moments, them kind of reaching for the camera. There, there are the, those flashy 3D effects. But I'd say more generally, it just gave you this this sense of immersiveness that I think helped the film a lot. Because, I mean, I was thinking about how much of classic private eye fiction is really no different than than Agatha Christie, right? And right. It's, it's Hercule Poirot going and interviewing suspects, or it's Mike Hammer going and punching suspects, right? It's, it's just a different interview style, but it's really just a series of interviews. So uh, to give it that that extra noir feel, so much of it is is the visuals, right? That That's telling you that this is different than just a typical, uh, you know, we're going to interview all the suspects until we, we pick which one it is at the end. So what was your, your favorite thing to see overall oh that is really tough I, I mean when i think about the one i have thought about since then I, just because i didn't have any context for it and i really enjoyed it i, I really loved cocktail hour which is this obscure columbia pre-code starring db daniels and i just i loved that because of the female friendship at the core of it there's it's bb daniels is this very well-paid illustrator, kind of commercial artist who doesn't want to get tied down, doesn't want to get married. So she goes and takes this cruise to Europe where she gets involved with this guy who seems like the best thing in the world. And of course, it's a pre-code. I'm not spoiling too much, but <laughs> he is not. But along the way, she meets this woman who is a Russian pianist who turns out to be actually a fellow daughter of Kansas. And so they both are these girls from Kansas who have <laughs> created these mystiques and these very sophisticated images for themselves, but they can connect on this very earthy level. And when uh, when it all goes to hell, Muriel Kirkland's character goes and takes B.B. Daniels to get drunk and kind of, you know, uh, process her, her grief and her regret. It was just it had this wonderful bond between the two women. I, I was almost like, ah, this this should be a series, you know, two girls from Kansas or something. Right. <laughs> it, it was really like I was genuinely wounded when it ends and they marry her off. I'm like, this should have been a series. I just love the chemistry between these two women who can call each other on their BS and have a good time and comfort each other and, and just kind of straight talk it when when the going gets rough. I, I thought that was a really charming film. Uh, so who was who was the bad guy, Randolph Scott or Sidney Blackmer? Sidney Blackmer, Randolph okay. Scott. Randolph Scott's Randolph Scott. Although it was funny to see Randolph Scott. I think that was his second film. I think that's what Harry Beecham said. It was funny to see what they'd done to his eyebrows. They weren't letting him have normal eyebrows. They were giving him the, the very 30s, you know, pretty eyebrows. He was almost looked like he was wearing more makeup than BB in some shots. <laughs> you don't expect to see a Randolph Scott, Mr. You know, rugged man of the plane. Right. It's not not what I saw in Man in the Saddle a few weeks ago. (laughs) No, no, definitely not. And another interesting thing about that film uh, is that it was directed by Victor Scherzinger, who uh, was also a composer as well as a a filmmaker. He directed one of the best lesser-known silence I have ever seen, a film called Forgotten Faces. Did you see this at Capitol Fest a few years ago? Um, I'm trying to remember. 
It's the one where Clive Brook is the the gambler, jewel thief, suave guy in 20 Chicago, I think it's supposed to be. And he kills his wife's lover and goes to jail for it. And he, he deposits their baby with a wealthy family so that she'll never know her mother. But her mother finds her again and is going to like ruin her life. So he escapes from prison to get the mother before she gets the girl. And I, I tell you, this film, it reminded me. <laughs> So much of early Hitchcock, the camera movement was so fluid. It, it just really is one of those late silence where it, that makes you mourn the coming of talkies because right. you don't need sound. You don't need it, it was, you know, coming for all your senses. You can hear the gunshots. You can smell the perfume. You can really like it's just playing on on the power of suggestion so powerfully. So that film has always made me think Victor Scherzinger is somebody who who deserves a little bit more interest and in, in exploration. So I was pleased to see that Cocktail Hour kind of bore me out on that because it was a it was a very uh, enjoyable film and it, it worked nicely with jewel robbery at kind of considering them almost as bookends of my festival because they're really like operettas without music. <laughs> yeah, or they're like you know operas where nobody's singing. So they were both uh, great pre-codes. I, I love seeing those pre-codes on the big screen because they—it's how they were meant to be seen. They really do pop on the big screen in a way they just don't when you're watching them at 3 a.m. on TCM. Right, I love doing that too. Yeah, no, I and I think sometimes it's like they look fantastic because nobody's touched the negative in 90 years. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. it's not like they got a lot of. Uh, distribution after that point so although i will note that uh, cocktail hour was a victim of some censorship and there was one scene that they could only show with images they had the sound, but they didn't have the images and that was a rowdy bar scene in which uh, the two girls are out drinking in london with uh, i think it's their cabbie or just some random bar guy at his his backstory was not super clear, and he's like, I'm not a gigolo. So clearly <laughs> some some local censor board didn't like the word gigolo and scissored that right out, but somehow the audio remained. So it was it was interesting to see that in. So it's always great to see the amazing work that's done to restore these films and bring them back to us, as in the case of Cocktail Hour and Eye the Jury, which were both digital, but you know, we really are only avail- going to be able to be shown that way because of all the restoration work that went into them and, and to get it back to what it what it should have looked like, at least as much as possible. Yeah, I mean, that's a good question. So is it mostly film, um, except when it can't be like that? or I'd say, I mean, it depends on what you choose to see. I do feel like they try to get prints when possible. I feel like the balance this year has skewed for me a little bit more towards uh, digital than film than it was in the past. I will also say that I don't I don't make that as much of a priority because I, there are other festivals I go to where it's, entirely or almost entirely on film. So for TCM, I try to go for the content and the guests because I know that Capital Fest is going to be majority 35 millimeter. I know that Nitrate show is going to be entirely 35 millimeter Nitrate. So I try not to make that as much of a priority at TCM Film Festival. I would say the balance has shifted maybe a little bit more towards digital than it has in the past. But um, I, again, I, I don't quote me on that. I'd have to, I'd have to look into that a little more. Well, I mean, as always, it's just it's great the guests that TCM can get. I would just say that one of the main reasons why I do continue to to go to TCM Film Festival is that they find people who were involved in these films, uh, and you know, and and you get to hear from them. I mean, even for a film like Somewhere in Time, which is not so very old, you know, right. but I and I think they've done a, a nice job of when they do that, they're choosing films that are in some way in dialogue with classic films, like Somewhere in Time. They showed as part of a 
a motif of romances across time. So, you know, they could show something like Portrait of Jenny and Somewhere in Time. Those are two films that are very clearly in dialogue. So it was really interesting to hear Jane Seymour talk about the making of that film and her ill-fated love affair with Christopher Reeve. Well, I shouldn't say ill-fated because they stayed very good friends throughout their their lives, um, but sort of maybe poignant uh, romance between those two and to hear her talk about the costumes and how she was the one who convinced John Barry to do the score for that film and how, of course, the score is one of the most memorable things. She had a really funny story about that. She said about the the entire film and, and kind of its place in, in people's lives. She says that probably the biggest objection she hears to the film is, oh, it's a chick flick. I don't want to watch it. As a- <laughs> And she said, well, I'll tell you whose favorite film it was. It was Colin Powell's favorite film. <laughs> whenever she saw him, he said that, that he loves that film. So uh, that I thought that that was really sweet. Before you could own an actual movie on a shiny silver disc, or even a cassette tape, the way you could get closest to a movie you loved was to own its poster. Sometimes posters are even better than the movie, in the way that a promise and anticipation can be better than reality. Dwight Cleveland is one of those who fell in love with these promises of what movies might be when you actually see them. His collection, at its peak, ran to some 45,000 posters, lobby cards, and more, funded by his day job as a real estate developer in Chicago. He also became interested in trying to get museums to pay attention to this art form, organizing the first major exhibition of movie posters as art at a top regional museum, the Norton Museum in West Palm Beach, in 2019. He's since downsized, selling off most of his collection. But he's still putting together themed shows, and right now he has one at New York's Poster House, Experimental Marriage, Women in Early Hollywood, consisting mainly of lobby cards for women-made silent films. I spoke with Dwight Cleveland at his new home, a condo building in downtown Chicago. Let's talk about this show that you're that you're mm-hmm. having in New York, and then we'll yeah. then we'll dive deep into the okay. why, why you became a poster guy and all sure. that. Sure, sure. So tell me about the show. So We're the show about. is um, it's about a hundred silent lobby cards that highlight films that were made by women, predominantly for women, and uh, it's the first time anybody has really focused on this 
in movie posters. There's been very, very few museum exhibitions actually on movie posters. Uh, and so this is only like the third or fourth one that's ever happened. And um, it, uh, you know, it's a subject matter that's quite apropos right now in the art market and in the world in general. And, uh, you know, in the business world, as women are really sure. finally with Me Too and everything else that's gone on, it's, it's really finally happening for them. So uh, I just am part of that wave, really, to be honest with you, in terms of developing this collection, building it up, and then, uh, you know, fortunately I got it uh, in front of the people at Poster House. And uh, so it opened last week on Friday, and uh, we had a great, you know, turnout. Um, there are a lot of people there, and people are incredibly enthusiastic, especially women. And um, I'll tell you a little bit about the way it all happened was I kind of backed into it in that I have been collecting, like most people, uh, famous genre stuff and famous actors and actresses and directors and, you know, the normal things why people collect movie posters. Uh, and I, I just sort of knew about a couple of women who were behind the camera playing an important role during the silent and talking era. And Wait, when tell, I tell me who. Uh, like Dorothy Arzner was really the, the first one. She was the first woman to direct a talking picture. Right. And so um, when I was doing research on my own collection, I happened to have something of hers from uh, uh, Night, Knights of New York, which is one of my favorite pieces. And so when I was doing the research for the book that I published back in 2019, I stumbled on her name again. And then you know how IMDB works, where, sure. where it's sort of this cascading thing. I would go on and I'd find, oh, yeah, I mean, you know, she directed this. And then I would click on her name and I'd see the other films that she was involved with. And I would look at the film, you know, the people involved in those. And I would start seeing all these women. And then I'd start clicking on their names and saying, Jesus, this woman, you know, wrote 40 plays that were made into movies. And so I started creating this list. Um, and mind you, you know, Mike, I've been collecting movie posters for 45 years. And this was completely new to me. It was like this revelation. And I think it sort of, you know, was a result of Me Too and Black Lives Matter and all of that in terms of giving recognition. I had never known, even though I've been eating, sleeping, and drinking this stuff for half a century, I never knew that there were so many women involved. And then when I really started to dive deep into this, I realized this is not just a coincidence it's, and it's not just a handful of women. There are an inordinate number of women who played significant roles, you know, all across the board behind the camera. And so then I, I developed this filmography and I, I went through all of these women's names that I had collected and then I found um, a database uh, of women um, who were involved in silent cinema that was compiled by Columbia University and I integrated that with my list and then I, I compiled this master list of films and then I used that as a guide to go out and look for stuff. And so during, it really happened during COVID. And so I, during COVID, I was able to call up, you know, some collectors who had big collections and 
visit them and go through their things and then filter stuff out, um, you know, things that were on this list of things. And it, it turned out to be, you know, far more than I ever imagined. <laughs> there are 9,000 um, items now in this sub-collection, and there are 2,750 film titles, and there are 1,000 women's names yeah. that are involved. And so it's just like, to me, it's it's like, you know what it's like? It's like a thousand stories of um, that movie back in 2016, Hidden Figures, right. with the women who, who were involved with the NASA. There are like a thousand stories like that in this collection now. Yeah. So. Who were some of the other women that you were particularly looking to collect at that point? Uh, well, the ones that I originally became aware of were... Um, uh, Dorothy Arzner, as I mentioned, because of her importance. Sure. And then um, the next one was really Frances Marion. And I kind of stumbled on her because she was married to Fred Thompson, the Western star who I collected on. Okay. And so one of my favorite pieces, actually, of all the Western genre is Jesse James, which he starred in. And so, um, you know, in doing the research for this book, I would, it, it, here comes this woman, well, what's she all about? And then I did a little research, and well, it's his wife, you yeah. know, no wonder. And a lot of his films were released by um, FBO, FBO, Film Booking Office. And so I then looked into them, and I figured out, well, you know, Francis Marion, like, wrote tons of this stuff. Guess what? And then, you know, um, Marion Fairfax was also involved with a lot of those. And and then these names, just uh, another one, Jeannie McPherson, you know, just incredibly prolific. Um, so that, you know, it just sort of like cascaded from there. And, you know, now I wish I had the list so I could read it um, right. too. But there, <laughs> there's just like, there are a thousand names on this list. Yeah. Um, and it's just incredible. I mean, I just feel like, so strange that I've been doing this for so long and I had no clue about this so it really once I got on it then I was like you know I have to do something about this and I have to I have to collect these and um, and compile them you know in one collection and alphabetize them and archive them and you know make them something that's uh, researchable really so how many are in the show poster house so they're just under a hundred okay. in the show, and these are lobby cards, eleven by fourteen inches, okay. um, and uh, and and they're all um, a series of women were involved in in most of these. It's not just one woman; it was like right. film editing and um, writing, directing, producing, all sort. You know, it's just like the whole gamut. So that just makes it really, really interesting. Now, I assume a lot of these are short films, so they probably only had lobby cards they didn't have like full-size posters well you know that's the other thing is that most of the 90 percent of all silent films have been lost sure um and so uh these posters and lobby cards are sometimes the only sort of physical proof that, that we have of these films ever existing right. <laughs> we find references in the new york times uh film reviews and some uh, trade magazines, you know, there's some information about some of these films, but having the actual lobby cards and the posters, it's just amazing. It's the only, it's the only proof. Um, right. So, well, yeah, I was thinking that when you were mentioning Fred Thompson, because he's someone who has a pretty poor survival rate among his films. Right. So, yeah, you you really have the 
what survives of Fred Thompson's career <laughs> yeah, at this point. Right. You have a couple of references, you know, in, in, in books and, like I said, in, in Motion Picture Herald and stuff like that. Sure. But uh, other than that, when you're holding the thing, one of the things that came up, which I find really interesting, is, um, I mean, this is not to denigrate IMDb because it's like a great reference, but um, it's not perfect. Right. Uh, and, <laughs> well, we talk about that a lot on Nitrateville, believe Oh, me. do you? Oh, okay. Well, yeah. here's one of the really interesting things that would happen is, so I bought um, a couple of very large collections, and I went through them piece by piece, and I would... I would look on IMDb or Wikipedia as I was going, you know, through these, and uh, this only could have happened during COVID when the phone wasn't <laughs> ringing, and, you know, there were no other distractions. I couldn't right. even leave the house, um, so I just sat there and sort of ground through this, and I would have the title card uh, in front of me, and it would have some a woman's name on it, and it would say, you know, like written by. Jeannie McPherson, and then I'd look on IMDb, and it would say written by some guy. Yeah, <laughs> you know. But I had the poster that said it right. with her name on it, and so I just love stuff like that. And I I didn't run into a lot of that, but every once in a while there would be one where the physical evidence, you know, contradicted sure. um, what was in the database. So yeah. um, you know, I just find stuff like that really really interesting. When I, all right, so this is uh, at Poster House in New York, which I assume is a gallery devoted to poster art. It's a museum. A museum. And it is the uh, world's foremost museum right now that is devoted singularly to poster art. And uh, they have got, I mean, they are really a great institution. They've got a young, vivacious, incredibly knowledgeable director. And um, she's very forward-thinking, and she's just full of enthusiasm. And they've got different gallery space, so they can have little shows um, going on simultaneously all the time. And so that's what they're... I think there are five different exhibitions going on at Poster House right now. This experimental marriage is just one of the, one of the five. Um, so uh, they've just got amazing programming. They're doing Zoom calls all the time with poster artists and poster designers. And um, I sat in on one the other day um, where a guy was over in uh, Belgium, and he actually printed his own posters in his studio. And he went through the whole process of you know, making, printing his posters. And uh, it was all on a Zoom call and stuff. I mean, and they have stuff like that all the time. It's just like this constant, you know, flow of, of different interesting programming if you're interested in posters. Yeah. So, uh, so it's a great institution. It's down in the Chelsea neighborhood, which is a, you know, a really exciting kind of hip, cool Where neighborhood. You find so galleries and museums. There's lots of stuff like that going on. Lots of young people live there, so there's just a there's a ton of traffic and there's like a really cool vibe when you go out on the street and it's running through October it runs through October 9th okay all right so speaking of collecting this sort of thing tell me how you got interested in that so this professor uh, the art art professor um, at my high school he was you know a big-time collector and uh, he had stuff hanging up around school and um, 
as I mentioned, one, you know, none of us took him very seriously, but one day he came back with this little group of lobby cards, and he was flipping through them because he was so proud and resurrected these out of his fire. And um, one of them from Wolf's Song with Libby Belez and Gary Cooper in 1928 just like reached out and grabbed me and said, <laughs> take me home. Uh, it was just love at first sight. I had to own this. It was, I just love the color. I love the design. It's got this deco graphic. And um, so uh, back then, nothing was really for sale. You had to trade for it. And so, you know, this guy, Mike King, said, yeah, I'd be happy to let you have this, but, you know, you need to find something that I want more. <laughs> and so uh, I uh, did not go straight to college after graduating from high school. I took a gap year, and I worked in Los Angeles. And at the time, Los Angeles and New York, which is where I would ultimately go to college, were the two major fiefdoms of movie posters. And there was a you know, a proliferal number of shops all over both of those cities. So when I was in Los Angeles, uh, I would, you know, I had Mike King's want list, and he was a very advanced collector. And I was 16 when I graduated yeah. from high school. So here I was going around, you know, to all these movie poster shops, and well, you have this Garbo title, you know, you have this Valentino title, and these dealers were like, what is with this? punk kid, you know, <laughs> and so, um, but they pull stuff out, and eventually I got a couple things on the list, and I brought them back to school, and uh, we made, you know, we made a global trade, and I, I got my little song, and really in the process of that, I found other things that I liked, and, um, you know, I realized that there was, you know, there was a real arbitrage opportunity, if you will, because I would go... Uh, off of Hollywood Boulevard. Most of the big stores were on Hollywood Boulevard, but some of them were off of Hollywood Boulevard, and they'd have a box, you know, anything in the box, $2 or something. And so I'd rifle through the box, and um, I would find something that I noticed framed and hanging in the window right around the corner on Hollywood Boulevard, you know, for 50 bucks. So I'd buy it for, you know, I'd offer the guy a dollar, <laughs> and, and then I'd go back around and I'd, I'd trade, for, I'd use that as trade, or I'd, you know, sell it to the guy for 20 bucks, and um, this just sort of snowballed, and that's kind of how I got into it, and um, it's always, that's really what makes me different, is that I love the graphics. Uh -huh. I did not really know anything about film when I first started collecting. And most people collect on a particular star or a film genre, but I started just collecting, you know, what I loved, which is the best advice I can give to anyone who is thinking about collecting anything is just buy what you like, and then you don't care whether the market goes up, down, sideways, whatever. Um, and so I've stuck to that uh, for the last 45 years, and I started out collecting uh, Greta Garbo, Marlena Dietrich, and uh, Mae West, and uh, those were the female stars. The male stars were Gary Cooper, or not Gary, uh, Cary Grant, and William Powell. And I became what's known as a completist with lobby cards. So I wanted the best card, either the portrait card or the title card, for all of the films from the 1920s and 30s. 
And so for those five stars, I started to, you know, get more and more of them and there were fewer things that I needed. And so I started adding more, you know, more stars to the mix and really it's expanded to all of the well-known male and female stars uh, of the 1930s. So that's my lobby card collection. Now, are lobby cards, is there kind of a standard set for each movie? Uh, well, I'm not sure what you mean by standard, but there's... Like you'd have, there'd typically be like 12 cards, and one of them would be this, and one would be this. Is there anything like that? Not really. It's it's unbelievably random what scenes okay. they choose. But, um, and, and sometimes, uh, you know, it's just amazing that they pick the, the scenes that they do. Um, because they're just not important. Right. Um, and then there are some others, you know, that are critically important. But, but a lobby card set predominantly consists of eight cards. Okay. One is a title card, and then there are seven scene cards. Um, and like I said, you know, it's, there's usually a portrait card, which is a close-up of the main stars. And then there are various scenes. Um, so some of those, you know, super famous ones are the letter of, uh, transit card from the Casablanca yeah. set, so that's a critical scene. There's a, um, from the Wizard of Oz, there's a, a scene where Dorothy is, is wiping the tears, um, and all of the main characters, you know, are in this scene, and they're about to get on the, um, the balloon, float away, uh, spoiler alert. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so that's a very sought-after scene. Um, but, uh, you know, for the most part, it's just sort of like random scenes from, from the film. Um, and those, of course, were meant to kind of catch your intrigue. You bought your ticket for a show, and you were waiting in the lobby to go into the movie theater, and you'd buy yourself some popcorn, and then you'd look at the board, and the lobby cards would show you what the next film was. So it was meant to kind of tease you into right. thinking, oh, well, I'll go see that Carol Lombard or Betty Davis film or something. Um, so that's that's really what I started collecting, was being a completist on all these major male and female stars. And, and then I realized um, that there were some really great graphics on foreign posters. Yeah. And this really happened in 1985. Uh, I had... I graduated, I went to college in New York, and, and actually that's how I um, got to know all the New York dealers. So I knew all the, the Los Angeles dealers, and then um, I knew all the New York dealers. And I knew them in person, it wasn't through the mail. I mean, this yeah. was back in the late 70s, early 80s. So having the advantage of being in person was huge. And uh, so, you know, I was a subway right away from, from you know, get finding stuff. And um, so it put me at a great advantage. And then um, I, had, I worked in New York after graduating from college, and I, I ended up coming to business school here in Chicago. But beforehand, I took a year off, and I traveled around the world. And I bought myself uh, a ticket on TWA for 300 and for, uh, what was it, um, 300 and $50, a round-the-world airline ticket, um, all the way around the world, uh, you know, making a continuous loop, and I, I took branch uh, trips off of, you know, hub cities, and uh, I really was, you know, hunting down movie posters as part of it, yeah. and so I, 
became aware of all these you know, beautiful posters from foreign countries, and so I started buying those. I was one of the first people to start you know, buying in quantity foreign posters. Um, especially from Italy was really my big discovery was, uh, I mean, the Italian posters are just absolutely fantastic. So um, I kind of you know, got into that early, and that's really when I started developing what I call my big paper collection, which is the, you know, anything larger than a lobby car. And so then I just started accumulating stuff really from all over the world and, and focusing on either graphics that I loved, whether they were important or unimportant films, but mainly great graphics from significant films. Right. Now, um, like when you did the show, you did a show in West Palm Beach a couple of years ago. A museum exhibition, yes. Right. Uh -huh. Yeah, sorry. Mm -hmm. A museum exhibition, not a mere show. Uh, and for, for a museum to take interest in it, I mean, were they mainly interested in stone lithos because that's more like traditional printmaking, or were they okay with kind of the standard four-color printing? Yeah, you know, I wish I had a, a, a really artistically sophisticated answer for that, but um, the reality is it was an act of God. <laughs> uh, and so what happened was the museum, which was a, uh, a reasonably well-respected regional museum, and had uh, an annual traffic of about 70,000 people for like two decades. Um, they went on an expansion plan and they raised a bunch of money and they hired Sir Norman Foster, the architect, to redesign the museum. And somewhere along the way, you know, they forgot that they needed to have some exhibitions in this new <laughs> space. And the woman who was the director at the time put all of her efforts into raising the money, right? She, you know anything about museum stuff? I mean, it's like nobody yeah. wants to donate bricks and mortar money. Right. So it was a very difficult task. So by the time she was done with that, she was just, you know, done with the whole thing. And they didn't have an exhibition. And so I happened to know the um, director of the, the board of directors, you know, the head of the board of directors at the museum, through a connection here in Chicago. And uh, we go down to Palm Beach for a party every year. It's completely unrelated to that. But when I was down there, I called up this guy and I said, hey, you know, I'd love to bring some posters along and, and show these to you. And so I met with him and one of the curators for about 20 minutes <laughs> and I rolled some posters out and I said, hey, you know, this, this is just a sample of what I've got, but I've got a couple thousand. They're all like the best of the best, creme de la creme, and um, I'd love to do a show. And so I got an email about three weeks later saying, let's do this. <laughs> Believe me, this is not the way it happens it's not the way in the museum works. world. Right. I mean, normally, you know, they're borrowing from 20 different places, sure. and there's contracts for all of those. There are lending contracts, there are insurance contracts. You know, there's shipping contracts. It's just a, it's a logistical nightmare for the people. They have whole departments and museums that take care of this. Sure. And with me, it was a one-stop shop. <laughs> I mean, I had everything they needed for the exhibition, and I, I gave it to them. I didn't charge them a thing. Um, I already, you know, everything was already 
restored and in beautiful condition. I'm known what it, I'm known as what it, uh, what's known as a condition freak. So most of what I own is in immaculate condition. It's usually if there's more than one copy, mine is by far the best in condition. Um, and so they did. You know, nothing really needed to be restored. Uh, and um, plus, I have stuff at the time when I lived in my home. Everything. A lot of things were framed in these Lucite boxes, which are very user-friendly in, in museums. And so they literally, when they when the curators came and selected things, they just took stuff off my wall. <laughs> they went, they got shipped down there, and they put it up on the wall of the museum. I mean, there was nothing else more complicated. It was so easy for them, and I think that's really how it happened. Was that it was it was just a one-stop shop, and you know they. They had nothing, and it was it was great because it was in the two largest galleries in in the new museum. You know, the thing like a couple of people have asked me about museum exhibitions and stuff. It's like you gotta have everything database. You gotta do your research. You gotta have photographs. You can't just go in there and say, yeah, you know, I got I got Casablanca and all this <laughs> stuff. It's like, right. all right, well, show us, you know. What, yeah. what, uh, what are the dimensions? What are the when the guy did the uh, the exhibition when the curator came here, um, who did the Norton exhibition? I had you know measurements of everything, and I let him select what he wanted. And he had this is how sophisticated this is, Mike. They he had a computer program with the dimensions of all the walls uh. at the museum. So you could just build the exhibition. And before he left Chicago, this was literally within, uh, he was here for three days. And by the third day, he was designing this. He went through like 10,000 posters, okay? And then by the third day, he was already taking my dimension and he was projecting it onto these you know, walls in this computer program and designing the show. And then what they what they ultimately did, I told you some of the stuff just came out from my wall and got thrown up on the wall down there, but other things they put up with magnets. And so this program, once he designed the whole thing, they set it up and the program shot lasers up on the wall and that's where they countersunk these special screws in each corner of where the poster is going to be held up by these magnets. So they just, you know, projected this thing up on the wall, and some guy was up there on scaffolding and was going, you know, four four spots, and then they put the poster up, and they put these, like, microscopic magnets up where you couldn't even see them, barely, and that was it. I mean, it was so unbelievably sophisticated. But you gotta be prepared for that. It's not just like, yeah, you know, right. you get these Wizard of Oz posters, well, it's like, us, you know, throw them up. I mean, it's uh, it's like a real business. And um, there's, that's the whole kind of like second half of this whole thing is it's great to own the stuff. But I think the curation of it and the stewardship is also you know, something I've taken incredibly seriously from the beginning in terms of archiving the stuff and having it restored properly and, and storing it properly so it's all acid-free and all the restoration is reversible. It's all water-based and, um, you know, stuff like that. I mean, it's all, like, 
the whole kind of second half responsibility of ownership. I expect it was very popular. I mean, it's... Well, on the traffic front, so I told you there were annually like 70,000 people who visited the museum. After, uh, you know, they opened up this new facility, um, during the six months that my exhibition was on display, there's just during the six months, the traffic was 140,000. So, um, you know, I have to give Sir Norman Foster right. a little bit of credit. There are one or two of those people went to see his design, but I like to think that the majority of them went to see the posters. Yeah. Um, and really, you know, the interesting thing is that a lot of these museums, they're, um, they have a brand and they have their own uh, in-house collection, if you will. Sure. And they have Rembrandts and Van Goghs and stuff like that. And that's what they're trying to promote. And so they're designing shows where their collection are, is, are the highlights. And then they're borrowing things from other institutions to promote that brand. Very few of them have movie posters in their uh, mission statement. Right. And it's also commercial art. So the fine art people look down on commercial art, right. even though you know a lot of the posters that I own are one of a kind, and you know it's unlikely that any others will ever be found because they're so perishable. They're printed on the cheapest paper, and you know they had a shelf life of a couple of weeks and stuff at the time, a hundred years ago. So um, you know every once in a while there there's some caches of posters that get discovered and, and I like to be the one out there finding those. But well yeah, you found that there's I was reading uh, a house was a, in the in Michigan. Michigan. City. Yeah, yeah, Michigan yeah. City, Indiana. Um, yeah, that was a house that was uh, built uh, it was added onto by the owner during the early nineteen thirties. And so he owned a series of movie theaters in that region in northern Indiana. And this, of course, was right kind of after the, during the Great Depression, you know, in the, in the early 1930s up until about 1935. And so, in order to save money, he just told his workers, look, go down in the basement of that theater, pull out a bunch of those posters that are sitting down there, and use them as insulation in the walls. Right. And so you could, you could date. The, um, <laughs> the uh, uh, renovations that he did based on the dates of the posters that were in the walls. And it was great because they were encapsulated right. in there. And some of them had some damage because they were on the exterior. But right. the ones that were towards the interior were in, in great shape. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, I, I discovered that um, back in the... And was that? That was in the um, early '90s, the very early '90s, and um, you know, it was one of the great. It was it was one of the great finds in movie posters, um, and uh, you know, it took me a long time to kind of filter through all those, and um, there, you know, there's some great trades and stuff that went in from all that stuff. Yeah. So what? I mean, in in a situation where it's being you know, shown, obviously the show in New York right now is on a particular theme and time period. Mm -hmm. Is that what they look for? They, you know, do they prize? Uh, well, what happened, what, so what happened there is uh, I've known the director of the museum. The director of the museum 
actually worked for one of the poster dealers, auctioneers when I was in college. So, uh, you know, my relationship with her goes back half a century, and we both kind of like rose in, in you know, posters, but I was always a collector, and she was always kind of on the other side, if you will. And um, so I wrote this book I mentioned back in, in 2019, and there's an arts club here in Chicago, and I wanted more than anything to give a book talk at, <laughs> uh, at this kind of hoity, uh, you know, arts club, which is a bunch of arts professionals. And uh, they wouldn't take me alone. They didn't think my story was big enough <laughs> or that my book was, was, was nice enough. And so what they eventually did was they brought in two guest people to, to kind of have a conversation with me. And one of them was Angelina, who they flew out from New York, and another was a, a um, former professor at the University of Chicago, who was also the poster curator at the Art Institute of Chicago. And so the three of us kind of had a conversation, and then um, you know I sold books and signed them, and this woman from Terry Elstein from uh, the University of Chicago, she had a book as well, so she was signing those. So it's kind of like this you know, group event, if you will. Yeah. And I, I reconnected with Angelina, and while she was here, I had her up to the house, and she, you know, she saw stuff that was hanging, and um, she definitely wanted to have something of mine up at the museum. I mean, it was destined to happen. Right. Uh, so then when this woman thing came up, that was 2019, and I was cogitating you know, I still had not really pulled the trigger on this women thing. It was it was brewing, and I was building these lists, and I was doing all this research, but I hadn't really acquired anything yet. I'd slowly started to acquire some things. Um, and then COVID hit, you know, at the beginning of the following year in 2020, and that's when I really kind of went into gear of you know creating this filmography that I described earlier and really going out to these private collectors and sort of accumulating this stuff and being able to kind of make that happen. And then once I got it archived, then I made Angelina aware of it and it took her like less than five seconds to say, we are having this as an exhibition. <laughs> so, um, you know, she made room for this. Uh, she made room for it. And it's an incredibly important story. Yeah. I mean, you know, women, as we talked about earlier, I mean, the Me Too movement and everything, yeah. um, it's just so long overdue. And this story is something that just needs to be put forward. And right. I think she's shown a tremendous amount of leadership. You've, by, seen, you've seen that DVD set of Pioneers of yes. Women. Yeah. Uh -huh. yeah. So Alice Guy Blachet is on my list. And... Uh, Lois Weber and sure. all these women, you know, who I had no idea who these women were, right. you know, four or five years ago, but now they're foremost in my mind and they're on, you know, they're on my list and I've got plenty of stuff that's represent, you know, representative of their, of their careers and everything. And it's, and the stories are, you know, just even having, you know, this conversation with you, it's like this stuff just kind of like comes out of the woodwork now. Right. And there's just all this great information and it's it's gonna keep coming and hopefully the exhibition will be you know a launch pad for a lot of that. Yeah. Yeah, I know. 
definitely visibility for the, the whole idea, for sure. Yeah, I mean, it just starts the conversation going, and it's, it's a great platform just because it's such a well-respected institution, and, you know, they get a lot of, um, lot of you know, people who are able to spread the word and promote it are, you know, regular, regularly coming through the door and over the threshold. Yeah. Now, is, is there kind of a, you know, a, a sweet spot for, for collecting? You know, I mean, a lot of us grew up when, you know, it was cool that there were posters by, you know, Bob Peake or Richard Amsel right, or whoever right, right. in, yeah. in like the 70s. Mm -hmm. um, but those aren't particularly rare. I mean, you know, if you, you could go out. Well, at one time we thought they were, right? yeah. but then something <laughs> called an eBay happened. Right, right. And, and, you know, a lot of times... This is what's just so different about the world. The world is, is really not such a large place uh, right. with the internet. And you know, what we once thought was super rare, all of a sudden, you know, you go on eBay and there are 20 copies available right now. Right. Whereas in the past, uh, we talked about Columbus, you know, the, the, the show that I, the convention I go to there, and there are several in New York and several in LA um, and elsewhere. And you know, back in the day when I started, that's where you had to go to buy posters. Right. Um, you could go to the stores, as I mentioned, in LA or New York, but even there, you know, the dealers had their favorite customers. So if something came in, and you know, all this stuff is super rare. So there would be one copy. Well, you know, you had to be first on the list yeah. to get called, and you went in and you bought it, and it. Um, you know, if you didn't buy it, your name was going to the bottom of the list, so you always, <laughs> you always bought it. Um, but the other thing is, if you were number two, three, four, five, you didn't, you didn't even know that that thing was available right. because no one would say anything. So uh, the stuff appeared to be much rarer than it used to be. I got one interesting story to tell you about. You mentioned the thing over in, uh, in Michigan City. So the way that happened was there were, there were two guys from Chicago who that was their second home. Uh, and they started doing renovations on it. And they started pulling you know, the walls down and they found all these posters. And they initially actually threw them out. And then one of the workers, who didn't even speak English, came to them and said, look, you're throwing all this stuff out. Do you mind if I keep a couple of these? Because I think my wife would like them. And then they noticed them, and they were like, oh, wait a second, you know, time out here. Don't throw any more of these out. And then they happened to call me, and I went in, and, and I bought everything. Um, I thought I bought everything, because, as I mentioned, there were different parts of the house that had been renovating. So I bought everything that they had demoed at that point, and I actually participated in the demolition. I'm in the real estate business, yeah. so, you know, I love doing that. I love tearing walls down. Um, but there were sections of the house that they didn't get to, or they weren't ready to start renovating. So later they did that, and they also became, you know, a little bit more familiar with what was going on with auctioning and stuff like that. And so one of the titles that they found was the Thin Man. Well, you know, the Thin Man is one of the most famous films of the 1930s. It's one of the great pairs of William Powell and Myrna Loy, you know, that existed during the Golden Age. And the, no one had ever seen a window card from the Thin Man before. And there were multiple copies that they found. And this was true of 
you know, the stuff that I had found. Um, so they decided, well, we'll sell one in Los Angeles at an auction, and we'll sell one in New York in Los and no one's going to know. Well, all of a sudden, you know, and then I think they sold one to another dealer or something. So all of a sudden, you know, a big-time dealer has one pictured in his catalog, and there's one up for auction in New York and one up for auction in, in Los Angeles. And I'll tell you that, you know, movie poster collectors are the most paranoid, you know, competitive, overthinking group you'll ever meet. And so we're all thinking to ourselves, wait a minute, we went from zero to three? Right. Guess what? There are more of these out there. So I'm surprised somebody didn't think, you know, are they forgeries? You know, well, yeah, well, we know, we know. Okay. I mean, I can, we, we know can the just feel, the smell, and sure. there's just no way that you could pass that over us. And so, um, you know, it just like, so the value of that poster just like came. <laughs> and it right. sold for almost nothing. And of course, you know, there were a couple of other copies. But, um, so their experience with that was they actually owed the auction houses uh, money because... They had agreed to um, have these restored, and they agreed to certain commissions, and there's something called the buy-in fee if your item doesn't sell. And so they ended up having to pay the auction house to get the posters back. Well, they came running back to me, and you know I ended up buying the rest. There were actually two subsequent groups that I ended up buying from them just because they realized that they were, you know, out of their, out of their league in <laughs> dealing with the intricacies of these markets. Um, uh, but, um, you know, it's like, it's what I love about this is, you know, I, I love the phone when it rings or I love my mail when it comes. I, I, I never know what's gonna, what's out there. And yeah. what the we, hunt is on. Yeah, I, I do love the hunt. It's a lot of fun and, um, it's exciting, and I've met some great people. You know, I've just met some really, really interesting people over the years at flea markets and right. you know, <laughs> antique shows, and even at Colonial. You know, I love going to the conventions because um, obviously I talk to people on the phone and email and all of that, but there's just nothing like getting together and, you know, convincing with people about different stuff that's going on. Right. So. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, do you have any personal preferences? I mean, like stone lithos versus... Oh, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. What really got me um, into this was the, the quality of the stone lithos from the 1920s and 30s. And there's really just nothing that compares to it. I mean, it's just... Ab they're, they're absolutely gorgeous works of art. And I can't believe that more people don't you know, love this stuff because yeah. it's just absolutely stunning. Well, like, we have... We bought one once, and I mean, the thing you just notice immediately is it's colors that you can't do with four color lithography. I mean, because right. it's it's printmaking, yeah. so there's this sort of slightly chartreuse yellow on the poster that just cannot be reproduced by right. standard printing. I know it's incredible what they what they did, and and the thing that people need to be aware of is that um, back when they were making these posters in the twenties and thirties. 100% of the advertising budget was spent on the posters. Yeah. So they were throwing everything they had at the posters. There was no television advertising, yeah. there were no bus stop <laughs> advertising, you know, nothing. There was virtually nothing. There was some magazine advertising, but that was kind of different. Um, and it was nowhere near as complicated or expensive. 
Right. So, you know, you had a whole art department whose job was to produce these fabulous posters, and they did a great job. And it was really in the 40s um, when TV started coming in and there were competitive mediums. Yeah. And the, and the uh, you know, the movie business was going through a huge litigation with, um, with the U.S. government, yeah. with the antitrust suit, which they ended up losing. Um, and they had to sell their movie theater chains because they were fully integrated. So, um, you know, the, the budgets just started to be reduced and, and, and uh, not only the amount that was allocated for the posters, but the budget, budget in general, just because, you know, they weren't spending as much um, as they were in the, in the 20s and 30s. Right. Um, have you seen um, John McElwee's books on showmanship? Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. I, I mean, it, it's just amazing. I mean, you'd have a three-day run of something, right. and they'd build a whole cardboard facade for the theater right. with all this art on it yeah. and stuff like that. It's I mean, amazing. Yeah, the amount yeah. of effort that just went into that stuff. And hire a kid in a gorilla suit to wander the streets. Right. You know, that sort of thing. <laughs> exactly. Like, well, they threw everything they had at it. And the thing right. to remember is, is that there was nothing else going on. Right. I mean, the, the super wealthy people were going to the opera and the symphony and stuff like that, but there was uh, yeah, there was a little bit of pro sports, baseball and stuff, but it wasn't anything, obviously, like it is now. And there was no basketball or any of that kind of stuff. Right. Um, so people had, you know, this was what people did back in the 20s and 30s. I mean, the, every, if you weren't super wealthy, you were going to the movie. People went to the movies like three or four times a week. Right. Uh, they kind of like the average U.S. citizen, and so they would just—I mean, the, you know—these marketing campaigns are like insane. What they used to do with theaters, especially in 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 bigger cities where they had a bigger budget and you know they knew that they were going to be selling more tickets and stuff. Right. Yeah, these three thousand seat houses, which you can't even imagine. So oh my God! Down. I mean, and it was—you know—they were of course coining money. I mean, it was just like you know the money that they. Generated. I mean, they were movie stars back then. I mean, everyone in the world knew who Charlie Chaplin was right. and Buster Keaton and William S. Hart. In fact, um, they're something they don't have now that they had prolifically then were personality posters where in France they could just put up a picture of a poster of Charlot, which was Charlie Chaplin's name in French. And it was just a, a portrait of him, and they would sell. T- they would sell out the movie theater. Yeah. Didn't, you didn't even know what <laughs> film you were going. You just knew it was a Chaplin film, and it would sell out. Yeah. Um, and it's just you know, it, it, it's amazing when you think about it and put it in perspective now, in, with all the competition of musicians and rock concerts and sports, you know, people and it, uh, to, movies are just one of. A multitude of opportunities for entertainment now, but back then there there was nothing. Yeah, that was the show. Mm-hmm. Um, so you had a huge collection and you sold it off. So what I did, Mike, was I described how I started collecting and my core collection, and that has remained the same. I still collect what Dwight thinks is great. You know, the the um, real estate developer with no film education. Uh, I still have that collection for the most part. Um, but I uh, I started competing with dealers really early on 
by buying collections. And I realized that, um, you know, this it happened a couple of times where I would I would be up against some other guy, you know, who's a dealer, and they'd say, oh, well, let me buy this collection, and then I'll sell you those two or three things that you want. Well, guess what? You know, those two or three things were the same price as buying the whole thing. Right. So I learned very quickly, I'm going to buy the whole thing, and I'll pull out those two, and then I'll decide what happens with all the rest of it. And, um, and I would end up auctioning this stuff and wholesaling it and trading it and, you know, just sort of divesting myself of everything I didn't want for my personal collection. And that happened for a series of years. And then I realized there's a lot of great stuff in here with a great story behind it. And that story was Academy Award winners. Uh, I'm from Chicago, so there was Roger Ebert's Top 100, <laughs> and of course the American Film Institute Top 100, and there were all of these lists. And so there again, I compiled you know, a, a uh, filmography of all of these titles, and then when I would buy a collection, I would pull the stuff out I wanted for myself, and then I would consult the list, and I would say, okay, you know, this I'm going to keep, and I created what I call my archive. So all of that stuff that was uh, vetted by a higher authority, if you will, you know, beyond me, sure. um, these were important films in the, in the history of, of the film business. And as dictated you know, by these authority figures. So I just dumped all of that stuff into this archive. Well, after about 30 years, you know, there were 45,000 items in this. And my, I mean, I just had stacks of stuff everywhere. It was all databased and photographed, but um, it was really unwieldy. And my wife just, like, one day said, "Dude, seriously, <laughs> it's either me or these posters. They just are taking over your life." You know, the difference between a hoarder and a collector is only that a collector can archive their stuff. Right. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I am like one little nano <laughs> over the line right. of being able to do that. But I do, I do, um, you know, have a lot of collections of different stuff. Movie posters is the biggest one. But we, we just, I, I mentioned earlier, we moved out of our house of 30 years and it took nine movers five days from 8.30 in the morning until 5.30 at night to pack us and move us. Um, I mean, it was just like, they kept pulling stuff out and I'm like, damn. Because you know? <laughs> I'm, in, I'm in, the, in the real estate business. Sure. As I mentioned, I restored historic buildings and so I've got light fixtures. I've got shades that go on the light fixtures. I've got door <laughs> hardware. I've got collections of door hardware. All matching sets, um, you know, all of this, all, just all this tremendous amount of stuff, um, and they just kept pulling stuff out, you know, and it was like, God, I forgot I had that. And, you know, <laughs> here's this, you know, I had some carved doors that were buried behind some stuff, and I knew that there would be a project where I'm going to put this at some point, but yeah. it all had to come out of that house, and um, it, uh, yeah, it was really. You know, a little bit of a shock. <laughs> Is there some warehouse up on Ravenswood or something where you have everything tucked away? Well, so my wife has her own storage, and I have my own storage. <laughs> and then I have an art storage where the posters are, 
And then we have, um, I have my office and uh, our apartment. And so there, um, you know, there are five places. And we also have a second home, so there are really six places where stuff is kind of spread around. Um, and it's, uh, you know, it's going to take me a little while to kind of still sort through it. Right. <laughs> but, but the posters are, I've always been incredibly meticulous with them. And I've got these architectural flat files where yeah. stuff is in there and, and the smaller stuff is, uh, the lobby cards are all um, packed in archival sleeves with acid-free backings and stuff. They're all alphabetized and then, you know, these custom boxes that I had made and everything. So um, it's all, and that's where all this women's stuff is too. Yeah. It, it, it hasn't all been photographed. I've got 300 DPI images of everything that I own except for the women's stuff. So it's all data-based and it's all archived, but I still have to photograph it. And well, I'm sure there are things that you hadn't seen in 20 years by that point. You might have seen the little image, but not actually looked at the thing. I hadn't looked at it, but I can tell you as an avid collector, I knew everything that I owned. <laughs> okay. I mean, and I knew exactly where it was, and I still do. Um, and and most you know serious collectors are like that. It looks like we live in chaos, but we know where everything is. And God forbid, you know, somebody comes in our office and moves something because you know they could just like move one little thing and then it, it just throws the whole thing off because we do know where everything is. Yeah. Um, but I, I, you know, I tried to sell that as one unit, and it would have been great if it had ended up in an institution. Um, you know, if you put it into perspective in terms of uh, a research and a reference, you know, tool and stuff like that in the history of film, there's it will never be duplicated ever again. It was just yeah. too much. You know, I, I've been all over the world for half a century, other than Antarctica. I've been on every continent. Right. Probably not a lot of posters. You know, no, no, I didn't think there was a high target area. <laughs> um, and I just bought, you know, in, in very large quantities uh, when I could. And um, it's just impossible anyone could duplicate that. So it, it kind of broke my heart that I, I couldn't land that in an institution. But I did sort of sell it off in a responsible way. So it, you know, it ended up in um, all the you know, usual places, if you will, of collectors and um, certain institutions and stuff like that. Okay. Uh, did you ever get to see Wolf Song? No. Oh. <laughs> Great question. I don't think it's, I think it's a lost No, film. I've seen it. Oh, you have? Yeah, I saw it at a festival called Capital Fest several years ago. Oh, wow, yeah. really? Is yeah. that the one in upstate New York? Yeah. Yeah, oh, in Albany? Uh, or, it's Rome, New York. Or actually. Rome, yeah. Oh, my God, really, yeah. yeah. No, I would love to see it's it. It's a lot of fun, yeah. Huh. Um, my understanding is it's, uh, so that's, Gary Cooper's first speaking role. Well, the one I saw was silent. I mean, there might have been a, a talky version as well. But. Yeah, so my understanding is, is that they started out making that as a silent film. And that was, you know, in that critical sure. time where everything was kind of like switching over. Right. And so they started out making it as a silent film, but they finished making it as a talking picture. Okay. So I thought it was like a... Like well, the version, yeah, the version I saw at least was all silent, silent. and did not feel like you mm -hmm. know I've seen occasional the hybrid films, right. and suddenly you're in a silent that's 
very slow and full of people talking to each other. <laughs> but uh, right. but this was not like that. But yeah, we may have had a, a sound version as well that might be lost now. But anyway, yeah. yeah, no, it's, it's a it's a good film. Oh wow! So, I'd love to. Uh, I'd love to see that. Yeah, no, I never have. And I and you know the interesting thing about that card that I that got me hooked on this. I've turned over a lot of rocks, believe me, in this hobby over the years, and um, I've never ever seen another one of those ever. Huh. So <laughs> the hunt is still on. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, it definitely keeps some of us going. It's yeah. like I mean, at this point, you know, one more poster really isn't going to make or break my collection. There are things <laughs> that there are things that I'm looking for. You know, well, yeah, that's a good question. Spots. Are there? Yeah, that's a very important question to ask. <laughs> I never answer that. Okay. Uh, I never answer that. But there are some things, you know, that I'm, I'm still kind of looking for. And um, the the great thing about this is that a lot of the stuff, you know, that I collect and, and I end up buying is stuff that I didn't even know existed um, because it just it's from some unknown silent film and no one has ever seen, you know, the poster never came out before, and then all of a sudden somebody finds one or I find it, and it's like, wow, I just love that. I mean, look at yeah. it. It's got no one I've ever heard of in it. Um, <laughs> I mean, at this point, I've pretty much heard of a lot of these silent people, but it's, you know, the people that even, well, you know, movie people have never heard of, George O'Brien or, you know, guys right, like right. that. Um, so, uh, you know, I end up, a lot of times those are the kind of things that I, you know, I end up, Fine. Yeah, I'm sort of at the point where, uh, you know, people say, well, what what are the movies that you really want to see? And it's like, honestly, I've pretty much seen everything I know of that I want to see. Right. It's when someone finds something out of the blue that I never even heard of and then show it at a festival or whatever. Right. Yeah. That's cool. Because mm -hmm. I had no idea that was even out there. Yeah, well, that's the great thing about these these festivals because they're... You know, there's just a bunch of movie nerds who are like, oh, yeah, I got this really clean copy, right. you know, of this film. Or, you know, this one I haven't broken out in the last 40 years. Uh, and so you get to see stuff that, you know, you otherwise, they don't have on Turner Classics. Or right. It's not on Criterion or any of those places. Yeah. Um, so that's me. really exciting. Yeah, yeah right. <laughs> and, they, and, it, and they're over a course of several days. And they're showing films constantly. So Yeah. You know, it's like every day they're showing about 20 films. It's like there's got to be something here that, you know, is going to pique someone's curiosity. Right. Yeah. Yeah. You know, the main thing for me with the posters is at this point I feel like I'm, I'm more, um, you know, kind of an ambassador, if you will, in terms of raising posters up. Because they definitely suffer from this Rodney Dangerfield yeah. complex, where the I described earlier the fine art people really look down on posters, and I've I've really been trying to kind of lift them up and um, gain a little more respect uh, around the art world, and, and that's why I did my book. I could have done my book, you know, with a Chinese publisher. 10 years ago, but I couldn't have gotten any distribution. Right. So it was really, uh, I wanted my books sold at museum shops and in high-end bookstores and stuff like that. So it took me a long time to finally connect with Asseline and kind of sell them on the, you know, the idea of this project. And, 
for people who've seen it, I mean, it's just a, I couldn't hope for anything better with it. And it, it's, you know, it's, it's expanded the hobby, you know, and it's the same thing with the Norton Museum. You got 140,000 people going through seeing these posters for the first time. It's got to have an impact. I mean, I've, I've talked to a lot of the auctioneers and the dealers and stuff, and everybody's business is up. They're seeing um, new people. And, and the, the copies of things that were in the exhibition or in my book have skyrocketed <laughs> because people love to have what, you know, is published. And this is what, it sort of gives credibility to all of it. Yeah. And, um, it, you know, I just think, I wish more people were doing it, for, quite frankly, because there's a lot of, you know, collectively there's a lot of information out there and people have connections and everything. And I'm always looking for more museums to do exhibitions and I got a lot of exhibition ideas. But I wish more people were doing it too, because they all, you know, regionally, um, people have all their own connections, and they'd be amazed. All they've got to do is ask, and there's something for everyone, if you will. Animation was big. There were a lot of little children's groups that came through from schools, <laughs> and you know, it was one of the fun things was it was in these two galleries, as I described, and so. Um, I would kind of hang out. I was there a lot. Right. And I would hang out in this doorway between the two galleries. And nobody knew who I was. Yeah. I mean, I was completely anonymous, and that was what was great about it, is um, I would just kind of hang out there and pretend to be looking at my phone or something, and I'd listen to people's conversations. And uh, when the kids came around, um, you know, their teachers would be trying to corral them and everything and show them stuff. And every once in a while, you know, I could see that there were a couple of kids that were like super interested and then I would go over and I would engage them and, you know, yeah. tell them more and everything. And, and, um, and it was really fun because I could, you know, I could see that these, that they got, it, you know, yeah. that they were really engaged with the art. Um, You've made another one. Yeah. I created another, <laughs> another, uh, Gene deficiency out there, <laughs> collecting. It is, uh, it is a sickness for sure, but it's been a healthy one for me. Yeah. And I'm thankful that I've uh, been able to, you know, sort of like keep it above board. And, and having a great wife has been a big yeah. part of that to sort of keep me, uh, keep me grounded. The thing to remember is that, like, there are two things that everybody loves the world over. One, and I don't really understand this, is soccer. You know, we call soccer what they call football everywhere else. Right. So everybody loves that for some godforsaken reason. And then everybody loves the movies. Yeah. And we could go out there and find some cab driver, you know, and and get together with some guy who's the CEO of a building over here on the you know, up in the penthouse suite. And we could all have a conversation about James Bond or right. something like that. You know, it connects all of us. So what I, you know, what I tell people is, it's like this is something that's sort of like the common man art. And these museums get real highfalutin. Yeah, right. they they want uh, the Art Institute here. You know, they get all excited when they get another Madonna and child. And, you know, I've told the last four directors of the museum, it's like, you know what, there are five people who care about the next, you know, <laughs> your Madonna and child. But if we have an exhibition where we've got Terminator and, you know, right. Die Hard and a bunch of other stuff, you're going to have people wanting to go to the museum that never thought about walking over the threshold of the museum, and yet they just don't 
seem to get that. I mean, it would increase their traffic, and even if they sold some more lunches in their restaurant or coffees (laughs) or postcards or whatever, I mean, it's all about getting more people. Experimental Marriage, Women in Early Hollywood will be at Poster House in New York through October 9th. You'll find a link to the exhibit in the show post at nitrateville.com. Thanks to my guests, Nora Fiore and Dwight Cleveland, and to Mary Mallory. Music is by Kevin McLeod. Be sure to subscribe at the podcast app of your choice. And if you can, leave us a rating and a review at Apple Podcasts. Thanks. Thanks.